our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's just about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. You've got to have an enemy for everything. The way that uh, Germany in the 30s rebuilt their infrastructure, rebuilt their, their industries, and rebuilt their pride, their nationalism, was by saying that these people, this group of people, is the cause of all of our woe, and if we hate them, we'll be better off. Look at here, y'all. Now you're talking about terror. And you can see that a Dixocrat is nothing but a Democrat in disguise. You today have, are in the hands of a government of segregationists, racists, white supremacists, who belong to the Democratic Party but disguise themselves as Dixocrats. A Dixocrat is nothing but a Democrat. Whoever runs the Democrats is also the father of the Dixocrats. And the father of all of them is sitting in the White House. And the first thing the cracker does when he comes in power, he takes all the Negro leaders and invites them for a coffee. 
to show that he's all right. Especially with our program with um, 
Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com, and Pascal Robert, who was with us last week about uh, the death of Antonine Nino Scalia, who was laid to rest. He will never get any rest, so I don't know what he was laid for. But he was laid today um, at the cathedral at Catholic University in Washington, D.C., and we say farewell and goodbye. Lots of things are happening. Uh, in case you haven't caught it, uh, tonight uh, in the Nevada caucus, uh, Hillary Clinton is being hailed as the winner, 53 to 47, with uh, uh, Bernie Sanders on the Democratic ticket. And uh, Donald Trump is being lauded the winner in Nevada even though, and South Carolina, even though Marco Rubio, the junior senator and the empty suit from Florida, is hailing himself somehow as a winner. Um, and uh, there is a an article that is floating around which says that Obama, uh, President Obama, intends to um, issue an executive order replacing uh, Antonin Scalia. It is not true. It is a satire piece, and please don't pay any attention to it. Politics is really front and center, and it is very, very um, timely that we're going to be talking with Dr. Spence, who is a political scientist, associate professor at John Hopkins University, and um, <clears throat> and at the center of emerging media uh, and and. And an emerging media scholar in residence at John Hopkins. He specializes in the study of black, racial, and urban politics. Uh, and in this, de- de- in this de- decade, uh, we have learned a lot, but there is much to be learned. And we're going to be talking about the turn of neoliberalism in black politics and what it means. We hope that you'll stay with us. And uh, our number is 347-838-9852. We'll be taking your calls with Dr. Spence. Um, <clears throat> but we're going to um, try to have get you as much information and understanding this topic as possible. I have labeled tonight's episode, Knocking the Hustle, Re-Imaging Black Political Empowerment. And the title of the book, Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics, I've posted the link to where you can buy this book. I've been asking you for weeks to read it. It's at punctumbooks.com if you are not in our chat room. And we hope that you will purchase this book. Thank you again for being with us, and we look forward to hearing your comments in this discussion. Uh, so when I'm talking about neoliberalism, uh, or when most of the rest of the world talks about neoliberalism, what they're talking about is kind of a set of institutional arrangements, public policies, and kind of common sense ideas that proposes that the market be the standard by which 
every institution and every aspect of human life be organized around, right? Mm -hmm. So when I'm talking about this to, to brothers and sisters, to black brothers and sisters, the, the term I'll use or the, the line I use is from uh, Diamonds from Sierra Leone, Re Sierra Leone the remix with uh, Kanye West and Jay-Z, and he has a line in there where he says, I'm not a businessman, I'm a business man, watch me handle my business, Dan. Is that idea that individuals should try to structure their lives to be as entrepreneurial as possible uh, and to become something akin to enterprises. Similarly, if you look at schools, churches, um, governments, the idea is that they should be structured um, like businesses. Neoliberalism is perhaps the greatest political slate of our time. And our guest tonight, Dr. Lester K. Spence, author of Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics, professor of political science at John Hopkins University, Dr. Lester K. Spence. In his new book, Knocking the Hustle, he makes it plain. In my opinion, this book is the most important examination of the increasingly nefarious politics of neoliberalism and the study of contemporary black politics. Knocking the Hustle against the neoliberal turn in black politics. As they say, you better know. And we're pleased to have joining us tonight Dr. Lester K. Spence. Stay tuned. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Dr. Lester K. Spence, thank you so much for gracing us with your time and expertise on our common ground. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Listen, I, I want to tell you that in my second pass on this book, I am fascinated at the idea that in this environment, in the age of Obama, people who are paying attention, people who are not being attended to, who could have access to this kind of thinking, understand the basis under which you wrote this book and what you mean, what is meant by neoliberalism. Because I think people get it confused with capitalism and corporatism. Talk to us about what it means. Um, so uh, thank you. That's a, that's a great question. So it's so one way to think about neoliberalism is kind of as a as a specific form of capitalism, right? And um, it's a form of capitalism that's pretty aggressive in its attempt to give resources from basically the what we call the 99% to take resources from the 99% to give it uh and the to take those resources and give it to the 1%. Um uh, similarly it's pretty aggressive in its attempt to generate a range of of, of public policies. I, I, and the quote you get in, in the clip you you used I talked about institutional arrangements about insti mm -hmm. uh, about public policies and institutional arrangements that basically uh, seek to to kill 
the welfare state to kill welfare, to replace it with something more amenable to forcing people to work with a range of public policies that reduce uh, the government's ability, uh, ability to tax progressively, uh, to institute a set of public policies that basically make a range of governments uh, that reduce the uh, that make a, uh, a range of public policies that reduce the abilities of workers to, uh, to organize, and then finally is pretty aggressive in kind of a cultural project, right? So I talked about um, Jay Z, that line, "I'm a businessman. I'm uh, I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman." It's kind of a cultural project as well designed to make individuals and institutions act as if they're participants in the free market. And in fact, they kind of redefine uh, what freedom means as um, in, in really stark market terms. And then the effect of these three moves are really, really um, problematic in as much as they increase inequality, economic inequality, racial inequality, kind of inequality between racial groups, and then because I'm talking about black politics, inequality between black population or within black populations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and one of the things that I believe that we have, have not made the appropriate and proper distinction is that within our own community, we have varying and very diverse interests, and there are a myriad of different kinds of struggles that go on. One of the things that you do in the book is you have made what I think is one of the most concise definitions of what is politics because uh, we have both um, gotten to, in, our, in, in the black community, gotten in thinking into thinking that politics only comes out of uh, the the political the electoral political body when in fact it comes from a number of places you write that politics is about competition over scarce resources and it's also an ex uh, uh, politics is also to an extent about problem solving and I think that most people in our community don't understand it in that in in that with that kind of precision outside of the body politics which most people think of as electoral politics am i getting yeah, this and, right yeah no, that's right and and to be fair it's not just um black brothers and sisters it's it's people in general on the one hand but then it's also people like me in the academy, right? I'm a political scientist. Because I'm a political scientist, I'm pretty careful about my, my, about my definitions, about what politics is, about where you can find it. Um, but in a, in a way, because of, the, because of the beneficial aspects of the move towards black studies, uh, what we have is a range of people writing about politics who aren't necessarily – uh, who aren't necessarily, who don't necessarily have expertise within politics uh, purely, right? So, so to give you a couple of examples, I mean, some of the examples I'm going to use are people who, have, who say they have our politics and some people don't have our politics. Like Skip Gates has written about, uh, about politics and written about Obama and other, uh, other political uh, dynamics in black communities. Um, his PhD, he actually is, has a, he's formally trained in like English literature. Um, yeah. Cornel West, 
Yep, yep. Cornell West is formally trained in, like, I think he's trained in philosophy. philosophy. Michael Eric Dyson, mm-hmm. yep, formally trained in uh, religion. religion. Um, right? Eddie Gloud, formally trained in religion. And what that means is their PhDs give them the ability to uh, to kind of do deep reading for, to, to understand text somewhere, to understand what's going on in various writings. And it gives them the ability to make certain types of theoretical arguments. But because they don't actually study political science, their, their conception of political science, of, of politics, where you find politics, is really, really much broader than what's needed at this specific moment. So what I wanted mm-hmm. to do was kind of take a really, really narrow reading. This is what politics is. Politics is a, is a competition over scarce resources allocated by the state. It locates politics in elections, yes, but it's, it's both far broader than elections, but it's also narrower than, for example, taking a, a really broad approach saying politics is everywhere. Like, like if I decided to grow an Afro, that's politics. Like, no, that's not really politics, right? Maybe that was at one point in time, but unless you're talking about resources allocated by the state that are kind of scarce, you're not talking about politics. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about... In, in terms of these resources within your definition of politics, we're talking about jobs, we're talking about housing, we're talking about education, we're talking about space because of gentrification. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we're talking about tax resources, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's interesting. i am um been also reading uh, Isabel Wilkerson's uh, warmth of other sons. Oh, she put and, her foot in that book. That book is um, over. I'm, I'm oh telling God, you, man. I am telling you, this book has has moved me in any ways because I I am a southerner. Yeah. I grew up in Florida. I grew up in Jim oh, Crow, yeah, Florida. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been thinking about the kinds of resources um, in a historical way. So what I want to ask you, when you talk about knocking the hustle, mm-hmm. explain to, to to this audience what you're talking about, because all of us so, listen to Kanye West. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I feel you. I feel you. Um, I mean, I don't really listen to. <laughs> so, so I talked about neoliberalism in those three ways, kind of uh, three ways. That's kind of a class project that gives resources to the one percent. That's kind of a public policy project designed to change governments, both locally, you know, actually locally, nationally, internationally. And then it's kind of a cultural project designed to make people and institutions kind of think of themselves in different ways. So what happens once that concept, right, once that I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman, once that cultural idea kind of becomes uh, becomes embedded, in black institutions and in black populations. And and again, it's important to state, I'm talking, this happens nationally, this happens to everybody, but because I'm writing a black politics book, I'm specifically focused, focused on black populations. This is not something that white people, that black people have and white people don't have, I'm, but I'm talking about black people, right? Once that idea becomes kind of embedded in black populations and black institutions, then the concept of the hustle actually changes, right? So when we were growing up, when you talk, when you were talking about a hustler or somebody running a hustle, you're basically talking about a con artist, somebody who's running game, 
somebody who's actually trying to get out of the work, get out of work, somebody who likely did not have a legitimate job, uh, somebody who was basically trying to just run scams. But sometime, maybe around the 90s or so, the idea of the hustle and the hustler shifts. Instead of somebody who's trying to get out of work, the hustler becomes somebody who's consistently working. Instead of somebody who works primarily in the, uh, in the illegal economy, you're talking about somebody who can work in the illegal legal economy, but somebody who may work not just in the legal economy, right, but they may have three or four jobs, right? And that isn't just a description. That is, we don't just say, oh, wow, yeah, this guy's hustling. That becomes the desired way people should be. Right. That becomes kind of like if you're not hustling, you're not really doing what you're supposed to be doing. Right. <laughs> so what and, and what that does is it kind of reproduces the what I call is the neoliberal turn. And one way to, to look about, you know, the effects of the neoliberal turn is to increase inequality. If you look at levels of productivity over time, like how much work workers are producing, what we see is a significant increase from 1970 or so, right? And some of that comes from technology increases, right? Like, for example, um, because I got a, cell, a smartphone, my students can contact me basically anytime I'm awake, you know, through email or something, whereas before they used to not be able to do that, right? Um, but if you look at wages, wages have flatlined. So we're far, far, far more productive, um, but we're not making, you know, but we're not making any more money and we made like in the seventies, even though the cost of everything will increase. So mm -hmm. the, the, so the, so the consequences of the neoliberal turn is increasing inequality. Um, and that hustle makes us incredibly more productive, even as we're getting paid less. Um, and even, even as we're being responsible, you know, even as, uh, like all the, 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 the public goods we used to have access to, uh, kind of dwindle. Right. And I'll talk about that a bit later, but all that, to me is the hustle. And what I wanted to do was knock that. I wanted to actually critique that hustle and everything that's associated with it, right? Because we're in a moment now where if somebody ends up falling on a hard times and I talk about my own, you know, my own kind of, um, my own, I, I skirted, right? That, that hard times yeah. moment. I, I talk about that in the beginning of the book. The argument now is that somebody who falls on hard times for whatever, it's their fault and it's their responsibility to kind of hustle and grind to get themselves out of it. I wanted to actually, I wanted to criticize that with, with as much strength as I can, I can muster. So that's why I kind of called the book Knocking the Hustle because I didn't want to actually, I, I want to actually make a strong argument against that move where we need to be consistently working, where if we're not working, we're not about anything. Mm -hmm. But you know, when I was reading, when 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 I was reading and 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 processing this this premise that you've just talked about, one of the things that I was thinking about is that part of the public policy, public discourse hustle was to create an environment in which there was a demonization of black people as being poor and wanting to be mm -hmm. on welfare and not have a job, as yeah. 
being lazy, having children who were irresponsible and they were dropping out of school because they didn't want to do the work or or follow the rules. And then there was a scenario where corporations and the government were actually shrinking in size and not creating a work, uh, not expanding the workforce so that it could handle the same level of work. Let's talk about that because I think that people who read your book, people who are going to read your book this week, uh, what happens to black people under this kind of structure? Uh, Let's talk about economics and education first. So so what happens – So there's this moment when um, the economy basically tanks, like in the 60, uh, late 60s, early 70s. The economy basically tanks. And the thing usually used to problem-solve the economy, right? So when the economy breaks down and you have something like a recession, um, you know, people usually turn to economic, like policy analysts who usually turn to economic theory. Um, and when the, econo- when the economy basically broke down in 1970, they couldn't use pre-existing economic theory because, uh, and I can go this later if you guys want, but because economic the-, the economic theory they used itself ended up being broken, right? People thought the- that the economic theory that they used to problem-solve the economy was itself broken. So in that gap, people proposed a variety of new ideas that we associate with neoliberalism, right? Like reducing the ability of labor to organize, reducing the ability of cities, uh, local and uh, state governments to collect uh, to collect taxes, uh, to reduce the ability of governments to kind of institute kind of what we think of as like a welfare state, right, whether it's a welfare explicitly. And then finally, um, although it's more complicated than this, finally you see um, an introduction of a significant ramping up in monies designed to increase policing and punitive approaches to crime. So this mm-hmm. stuff happens in around in the seventies, in the early seventies, around the same time that black people not only formally get the right to vote, um, because you know they've had that for like a few years, but they not only get the right to vote, but they actually start to wield that effectively, particularly in cities, right? You see an, a significant increase in the election of black mayors, and you see a significant increase in the election of black state and federal officials, right? So you see cities like um, Atlanta. Detroit, Cleveland, Gary, and other cities like them fall under black political control. Um, when they fall, they black people seek with the limited resources they have to kind of remake government for progressive ends. But when that neoliberal turn hits, all of a sudden, all the resources, the resources that cities used to have become really, really, really limited and then black political officials are really constrained in their choices. And, uh, and the choices that they're kind of pushed towards are choices that exacerbate rather than relieve inequality within black populations. So that's one mm-hmm. dynamic that happens. And then what you see within education, so there was this moment, and uh, again, there's this moment like between, uh, particularly between like the late 40s and let's say the end of the 60s, where people with nothing but a high school education could go get a job in the plant and make enough money to take care of their family um, if they made a decision or, you know, 
well, it's more complicated than this, but if they decided that the, that the father was going to work and the mom stayed home, the father could make enough money to take care of the family. Uh, the father could make enough money to put the kids through school, uh, to buy a house, and to have something to retire off of. But once the economy drops out, one of the things that happens um, in part to, jo- to dodge the, uh, the union question is, uh, is uh, that corporations move first out of the union heavy north to the union, to, uh, to the union weak south, right, and within the United States, and then they move outside the country. So all those jobs that high school educated black folk used to get are no longer there. So that basically that move ends up cleaning out cities like Detroit, like Gary, like Baltimore, like all like the steel industry basically left um, Detroit, uh, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and Gary. The automotive industry basically left Detroit, and all of a sudden you have these large numbers of black people who are educated for one type of job, but that job no longer exists, right? So that's one part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But and let me give you another make- example that you you didn't yeah. raise in the in the in the um in the book, but it it certainly came very distinct in my mind was the collapse of the high-tech electronics industry in certain places up here on the northern edge of the plantation, uh, specifically in Massachusetts and Connecticut. And then you had the migration of jobs uh, like Motorola, Xerox, and Mm -hmm. IBM moving to places like South Florida because they knew that they were about yeah. to shift the touch labor market over uh, off off offshore, and yeah. where they were going to be left with uh, only a job market for knowledge workers. Yeah. So yes. that was a huge crisis during that time. Yes, yes, and what we see is an explosion. So when you move. From the, particularly once the tech sector actually becomes a significant component of the economy, we see a significant rise in the number of uh, – of, uh, so there was a moment when you could have a high school degree and have a good job. That is a job that paid you well, that gave you benefits, and gave you retirement, and gave you ability to build some quote-unquote wealth, right? Um, once, you have, once a neoliberal term really takes hold, particularly during the Clinton era – you know, you, you can no longer have, you can no longer come out of high school expecting that type of job. Those type of jobs are concentrated, uh, not primarily, not solely, but pri- but significantly within the tech sector. So the tech sector becomes a place where you can get a good job, but the number of black uh, people specifically and black Latinos in general that can get those good jobs is significantly lower compared to their white counterparts. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're mm-hmm. blo- so so the to the extent that there are job gains in the 90s, those good job gains were concentrated primarily within the white population, and when uh, black and Latino brothers and sisters could get jobs, those jobs tended to be Walmart-like jobs, jobs that paid you really really low money, that gave you no benefits, and that weren't even salaries. They weren't even full-time jobs. You really had no job security. Right. So that's mm-hmm. what happens. Mm-hmm. That's where economic and education kind of – that's where the economics and education dynamic kind of come together. But really quickly, the, what I what, – um, so one question that your listeners may be asking is, like, given the results of the neoliberal turn, given that you see an, an increase in inequality, 
um, a significant decrease in the ability of people to make money to take care of their families. And this is, you know, people in general, not just black people. How did this turn take place? You know, how did people end up supporting policies that end up hurting their interests? And this is where I argue that racial politics plays a significant role. As you kind of implied, what ends up happening is is that neoliberal turn basically occurs on the backs of the quote-unquote black welfare queen, the quote-unquote black male criminal, and then the, the kind of the black, um, like the black person who basically uses tax dollars uh, to take resources from white populations. That's how it happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 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 one of the things as you as you outline in the book, when we saw the destruction of the <laughs> industrial centers like Detroit, like Flint, um, in Chicago, uh, all through uh, the um, midwestern part of the country, where the Great Migration happened, which is why Wilkerson's book is so helpful in informing yeah. your own book, is yeah. that. We didn't pay attention to the clues in public policy, and we didn't pay attention to the discourse. And folks out there will remember when we were part of the chorus gunning down welfare queens, gunning down people on welfare. And you all know, mm-hmm. don't don't even try it on here to that tonight, mm-hmm. uh, because we were part of of that chorus. And we weren't extrapolating or or translating what was happening in public policy at the same time in the 90s, particularly with uh, President Bill Clinton and his welfare reform program and his three strikes program Mm -hmm. at a time where the resources were so limited. Yeah, yeah, and and to be and to be fair, it wasn't all of us, right? I mean, if you remember, no, Marion no. Wright Edelman actually ended up leaving her leaving her post because she just didn't support uh, Clinton, Clintonian policy. And there were a number of black people on the left who knew what would happen once this welfare move was created, right? They knew what would happen, and they fought, and black people fought against it. It's just they lost, right? Um, they and and there were a number of 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 black people on the other side who believed that the best way to help black people would basically be to help black high-income high, high earners and black professionals and thinking that that result would kind of trickle down. Mm-hmm. And if they mm-hmm. end up kind of killing the stereotype of the welfare queen by killing the policy, they thought that maybe, you know, black people would succeed. And they were wrong. And a number of people told them they would be wrong, right? That is, that this welfare queen thing is racist, first of all. Second, we, re- we deserve a safety net, right? Because there, um, for a number of moral reasons and political reasons, we deserve a safety net. Um, and third, that the um, welfare queen, even if those, even if the welfare queen thing did exist, I mean, did exist once you kill the public policy, it's not like the it's not like the uh, the stereotype is going to die. It's not going to happen, right? And that's not what happened. Mhm, mhm. But but there was something else that was going on also, and that was an increasing uh, challenge and growing movement of the neoconservatives uh, within the yeah. the within the body politics. Yes, that that yes, that's and, absolutely right. And, and yeah. you and you yeah. had this 
see, I learned a lot. I'm, I was saying to me, well, maybe I'll, I should go down and sit in on one of his classes. Uh, <laughs> uh, that you Come on down. This, have... this growing urgency towards states' rights. Mm-hmm. And yeah, in yeah. that, you, the body politics was filling up states with neoconservative governors and state yeah. legislatures. Let's talk about that yeah, for a right. minute, because I really do want to yeah. get to the black misleadership or uh, yeah. uh, no, the black you. elected officials. But let's talk about yeah. that for a minute and the impact in in how uh, neoliberalism was promoted through the movement of of the states' rights uh, and 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 the conservative movement. Yeah, so what you have, uh, when Reagan gets elected in 1980, he's the first political official in American context to really, really, really promote this idea. I mean, and nobody had the term neoliberalism at the time. That's not what, you know, nobody used the term at the time. But he was really, he made a really strong argument that government wasn't wasn't just not the solution to America's problems, right? Government was the problem, right? So in order to reduce the ability of the federal government to kind of heavy-handedly, heavy-handedly kind of stifle innovation and entrepreneurialism, what we needed to do was we needed to return as many rights to the state and to local governments as possible, not using kind of the racist arguments of the 50s, the explicit racist arguments of the 50s, but rather using more subtle arguments, saying, for example, that, you know, local government was closer to individuals' concerns, local government was, you know, somehow more accountable, uh, local government and charity could do a far better job of giving people the opportunity uh, if they were on hard, if they were, you know, if they had fallen on hard times to kind of pull, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then embedded and then connected to this was kind of a cultural project that actually argued that if people took responsibility for their own, uh, for their own lives, it would increase their capacity to kind of develop themselves and, and, and grow, Right, so I'll give you a college. We talk about education. I'll give you a college, um, a college, uh, a financial aid example. Right, yeah. So, uh, so under Reagan, under Reagan, the amount of money given through Pell grants, right, significantly decreased. Decreased. A Pell grant was a, a was a grant that was given to kids who wanted to go to college, regardless of what their GPA was, that they did not have to pay back. Reagan mm-hmm. argued that that was kind of irresponsible, that we needed to place more responsibility on parents to make decisions for their kids' education, and if we made them take out loans, it would make them be more responsible, right? And, of course, what ends up happening as a policy result is kids end up coming out with a whole lot more debt than they used to be able to, than they used to come out with, uh, particularly with the mortgage crisis. There are a number of parents who can't even take out loans for their kids' education, meaning that they're not as uh, they're not really able to go into the types of uh, post uh, of college college um, colleges that they may want to go to. So what we see is this neoconservative kind of cultural project 
attached to the state's rights project. Now, the racist stuff is still in there, right? It's not like the racist stuff that was attached to the state's rights in the 50s uh, particularly went away. It didn't go away, but rather it wasn't explicit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then and filtered down, uh, one, one of the problems with why we lose when we don't pay attention to the generation and the and, and and when public policy when public discourse moves toward public policy is because we're not doing what I call impact analysis and what that means and mm, sometimes right. i think that the black leadership and the black elite translate those that kind of discourse, those kinds of policies, in a very different way, uh, because um, and, and and it's also generational, where people think, well, you know, we've got a smart black kid who can't get to college, maybe they can do something else, uh, and that's such a mistake. Um, when we see neighborhood schools being closed down. We don't look at the impact of that in terms of its its disparate impact um, that contributes to dropouts and and yeah. graduation rates. We we, we well, fail to do that. Well, in some cases we do, right? So um, when they try when they shut down schools in D.C. Under Michelle Rhee, who was a uh, who was an appointee of Adrian Fenty, who was the the black mayor at the time, uh, Michelle Rhee was a Teach for America product. Um, uh, she was a uh, yeah she was like CEO of DC schools, wanted to shut down a number of schools. Uh, regular DC folk in in combination with DC teachers did kind of impact analysis and saw what the effects would be. Uh, similarly. When uh, when Mayor Rahm Emanuel in Chicago tried to shut down. Uh, 50 schools, uh, the teachers' union kind of are organized and said, okay, no, these are what the effects, these are what the effects of that move would be. Now, they weren't, in neither case were they successful in peeling back the attempt to close down those schools. But you do see in some attempts the type of impact analysis that you're calling for. It's just that this is just that there aren't enough examples, right? There, there are a number of places that don't have the capacity of a Chicago or D.C. to engage in that type of impact analysis, and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I thought about, and I'm sure a lot of people who were reading your book thought about, is the kind of destruction to the notion of public and civic engagement that comes with neoliberalism, uh, that discourse, public discourse gets shut down because of some of the stereotypes, some of the demonization, some of the, oh, that's not the problem. The problem is the individual parents aren't taking care of their kids. Parents aren't making their kids come to school. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And so at what point, and you you do offer some solutions and and ways of thinking about problem solving uh to how we kind of lift ourselves away from this trend toward neoliberalism and 
I think that that is the only way in which we're going to be able to successfully challenge um, the public policy that is in our not in our interest and has a disparate impact on poor people and poor working people specifically because we can't even say middle class anymore because neoliberalism has killed that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, so explicitly what, you know, what I argue is that we should kind of, what we, what in fighting, in contesting the neoliberal term, what we're trying to do is contest the uh, the increasing degree of economic inequality that's happening in general and specifically within black populations. But what I'm also trying to do, and you hit the nail on the head, is kind of re is get people to think again about the idea of the public good. Right? Education is a public good. It's not a private good. It's a public good. That is, we benefit as a nation. The community benefits as a nation. Um, as our citizenry is educated, right? So I do happen to have five children. I'm incredibly productive. But even if I yes, didn't have kids, right, right, even if I didn't have kids, the more educated the kids on my block that my children are, the better off I am. That's a public good. But what what's happened is we've swapped out that sense of the public good for the market. And the market doesn't really have a public, just has <laughs> individuals making choices for themselves as private uh, as private actors. And mm-hmm. what we do is we create the conditions, again, to increase, not just to increase income inequality, but to significantly decrease the quality of life of large swaths of the American population. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I've been very concerned with, Dr. Spence, over the last four or five years is the privatization of public housing, Um, the privatization of public education as in charter schools. Uh, Because as you explain it in your book, this is how we dilute the available resources. Yes, yes. What we have to do is fight for a sense of the public in which we're about expanding the resources that individuals have in general and then expanding kind of the political resources people have to govern themselves. And what we see with that neoliberal turn in instance after instance after instance is kind of an attempt to to reduce the ability of government resources to provide for anything outside of the needs of capital and outside of the needs of the 1%, you know, simplifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just, I, I want you to talk uh, briefly. We've got 10 minutes before I need to take a break. And for those of you who are just joining us, we are with Dr. Lester Spence. He is the author of Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics that we're discussing. He's an associate professor at John Hopkins University in Political Science and Africana Studies. And we thank you for for joining us. But before we go to break, I, I want you to kind of give us an idea of how you, you talk in the book about neoliberal civil rights. 
Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um so this gets at kind of the heart of the black politics element, right? So there's a way that we've written so a lot of us when we when when we talk about black politics, what we're really talking about is racial politics. That is we're talking about the ways in which kind of black people in general have resources withheld of withheld from them because of racism and white supremacy, right? What I when I'm talking about black politics, I'm talking about the the way that resources are distributed within black communities, right? And what you look at, when you look at black communities, you've got some black people with a lot of resources, um, some black people with maybe uh, with fewer resources than that, and then a whole bunch of black people with nothing. So I'm interested in how that happens. So when you talk about neoliberal civil rights, what you're talking about is the way in which what we've done within black what black elites have done within black communities is taking their own class interests and then swapping them out for the interests of black people as a whole, as if they were the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. So you have elite after elite making basically neoliberal arguments about what black people should do. And then the results of those arguments or the results of those policies is that black elites end up getting the bulk of the resources, a bulk of the care within black communities, and that leaves a lot of black people out. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. That, that, and that happens whether you're talking about black pastors who promote the prosperity gospel, you're talking about whether you're talking about black, uh, black mayors like Michael Nutter in Philadelphia, Adrian Finney, who's not in office anymore, in, um, in, uh, in D.C., uh, Cory Booker, who used to be mayor of Newark, uh, Mary Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, who's stepping down in Baltimore, a range of political officials, and then a range of other actors who are, who are promoting basically neoliberal policies and arguing that those policies are, uh, can work within the uh, work best for the black interests. And I will add Deval Patrick as governor of Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to do that. And, you know, the thing is that all of these people, I, this is, folks, this is where we have to get this squared away about the politics in our community, is that we're not saying these people are not nice people. Last Saturday when I was excoriating Antonin Scalia, I wasn't talking to him talking about him as a father of nine children right. and having a wife. That's right. Yeah, I was, that's right. And his son is a priest. I was talking to him as a political figure because he changed the Supreme Court into a political entity. And that yeah. is where we have to make our distinctions. You're listening to yeah. Our Common Ground. And Dr. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Spence is with us uh, tonight. I mean, we we have got, I mean, I think that that is, I mean, I want people to know that we're not trying to beat up on black people because they got elected. We're not trying to beat up on black people because they are successful or they have something beyond middle class. That's not it. But we yeah. have we have a distribution, economic and educational and social distribution within our own community, and it is a prism. And we cannot afford to begin 
to continue to think that all blacks share the same interests. They do not. I have nothing yeah. in common with Miss Fishnet Beyonce Carter. Nothing. Yeah. She yeah. got more money than me. She's yeah. got better legs than me. She's got everything. <laughs> She's younger than me. I mean, <laughs> so we've got to start thinking about some of these people. And, yes, uh, Dr. Spence, I have excoriated John Lewis, um, the the representative, U.S. representative from Baltimore, whose name I can't think about right now. Uh, I think that there are people who have lost a sense of 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 all but a small pool of people in our community, a small pool of the problems within our community, and because they have done that, everything gets kind of overwhelming to them. Yeah, <laughs> and, they, go ahead. And and what. And that interest thing is really important, right? Because one one really simple argument is that these people kind of that these people kind of hate black people or sold out or they don't love black people. It's like no, they have different interests, right? If they have different interests because of where they kind of are in the social hierarchy, or in, in part because of that, right? And so yeah. you, you when you say when you're knocking, basically knocking Antonin Scalia. He may be the nicest guy in the world, right? He may be a wonderful father or grandfather, but his policies are horrible. Similarly, you know, the political officials I'm talking about, so like take take Kwame Kilpatrick, the former mayor of Detroit. Kwame Kilpatrick loved black people. He had very different interests than most of the black people he governed in Detroit, right? The That's same right. thing for Michael Nutter in Philadelphia, the same thing I'd argue for Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake here. When we move, when we talk about love and care and value, it's not that those things aren't important; they are. But, but we have to get back to interests, right? What are their interests? There are people who love black people who have interests that are very different than the interests of poor working class black men and women, and we and that's real. Thank you. 314, I see you there. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk with Dr. Spence very briefly, well, not very briefly, a lot, about the, <laughs> about the, um, the impact of the election of President Barack Obama and neoliberalism in this country. Thank you for being with us. We'll we're going to go to this break. We're not going anywhere. We're just going to celebrate the birthday of Nancy.
Nancy Wilson is an American singer with more than 70 albums and three Grammy Awards. She has been labeled a singer of blues, jazz, cabaret, pop, and soul. She was born today in 1937. We are grateful for her kissing every love that I have ever known. I have had the good fortune of partying with Miss Nancy Wilson and sharing a sisterhood in Delta Sigma Theta. Thank you, Nancy. Happy birthday, Nancy Wilson. on Blog Talk Radio every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. The I Declare Show with India Declare. Are you breathing oxygen in? Are you raising the energy up? Or are you bringing the energy down? There's no middle ground. It's your real, raw, and right now talk radio. I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Blog Talk Radio. I Declare It. Dealing with the difficult, real, raw, right now. I declare a show, baby. It's real raw and right now with the I Declare show and our colleague, India Declare, every Tuesday night, 9 p.m. Now you talk about terror. What about for me? Uh, nine years ago, nine more white liberals, so-called, came up with what they call a Supreme Court desegregation decision, and the problem is still here. And then another white man named Kennedy came along running for president and told Negroes what all he was going to do for them if they voted for him, and they voted for him, 80%. He's been in office now for three years, and the problem is still here. When the police dogs were biting uh, black women and black children and black babies in Birmingham, Alabama, that Kennedy talked about what he couldn't do because no federal law had been in, uh, violated. And as soon as the Negroes exploded and began to protect themselves and got the best of the crackers in Birmingham, then Kennedy sent for the troops. And there was no, he, uh, he, used, he didn't have any new law. I've been terrorized all my days. Anytime you throw your weight behind the political 
party that controls two-thirds of the government, and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time, and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you're not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. And you know they put me on a shot. Stole my name, left me in chains. You know they harmed me. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. They castrate on me. There is ain't no one new. And we think that tomorrow is a good day to gather your children around and your neighborhood children, too, to talk about the 51st anniversary and the legacy of Malcolm X, and I hope that you will do that. Tonight at Our Common Ground, Dr. Lester K. Spence knocking the hustle against the neoliberal turn in black politics, and again, Dr. Spence, thank you so very much uh, for bringing us into a teach-in on neoliberalism and the turn. Before we went to break, I wanted to ask you about um, in what ways the election of Barack Obama has lent to the promotion of neoliberalism. Um. That's a uh, really, really great question. So, <clears throat> so what you see as around so in two thousand eight, the kind of the economy crashes again, right? And Obama's elected on. If you look at the re- rhetoric that he deployed in black communities in particular, amongst black populations before he ran, you see two elements. You see one element suggesting that if they if uh black people mobilize in support of him if black people turn out in support of him that you would actually see kind of a signal change in government the same type of change in government that Reagan made right so when uh before Ronald Reagan uh government was broadly viewed as kind of um um an entity that had to had at least the possibility of making people's lives better but Ronald Reagan single-handedly changed that viewpoint where, you know, after he was elected, people began to believe significantly that government was a problem rather than a solution, right? And that generates the turn. What Obama was arguing in black populations uh, and in progressive populations in general was that if you elect me, I'm going to make, I'm going to change that back where government can actually be used progressively to solve people's problems. But at the same time, he also argued that black people kind of were responsible in some ways for their own circumstances, right? Where he would tell people, for example, well, what they need to do is get Pookie and Ray Ray to the, uh, to the voting polls, because if Pookie and Ray Ray voted more often, then maybe black people wouldn't have these problems. Right. So then he finally gets, you know, so when he, when he gets elected, he beats uh, John McCain, like he stole something. What does he do? And his, uh, policy response to the uh, to the mortgage crisis was to help banks as opposed to helping individuals, uh, and what you see um, is a, an increase in the use of kind of 
language that kind of castigates black people, uh, blaming them kind of sort of for their own uh, for their own problems. When he finally turns around, when he finally gets around to kind of embedding um, or generating public policy for black populations or urban populations in general, with uh, no child left behind or uh, race at the top, rather. You see kind of a continuation of George Bush's neoliberal policies that force education, uh, that force schools within urban school districts to compete against one another, that consistently or increasingly treat school districts as if they're economic engines, that treat schools as kind of entrepreneurial institutions as opposed to public institutions. And then with My Brother's Keeper, we see him kind of uh, generate the type of public-private partnerships that um, end up um, treating working-class Black and Latino boys as if the primary reason they don't fit the economy is because they don't have the ability to hustle responsibly. Uh, and then that generates a set of public policies that are designed to teach them to hustle responsibly as opposed to dealing with the larger structural dynamics. I know there's mm -hmm. a lot in there, but I, but, but uh, I would argue that that's Obama's response to the neoliberal turn. He consistently mm -hmm. kind of reproduced that. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a pr promotion while the rhetoric was, was, was very different, uh, especially in his uh, first camp, um, term uh, campaign, and actually his public policy contradicts the notion of government doing better and being more responsible and supportive of yes. specific problems. Wow. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that's right. But, but you, you really do a magnificent job of presenting the facts and the historical context of public policy. Uh, in the book, and I'm really encouraging everyone. This is an important and critical work, and we thank you for it, um, Dr. Spence, because I was starting to run out of ideas about what the discourse ought to be and how we get to the solutions uh, and, and, and challenge uh, the basis under which our government was going to it was was beginning to set in concrete a lot of the notions that you talk about in the book and 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 we are grateful folks the book is knocking the hustle against the neoliberal turn in black politics and i have posted in our chat room how you can buy the book dr spence i do have uh many other things i want to talk to you about but we've had someone holding for uh, a while to talk with you. I'm, I'm going to go to the phones. 314, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Yes, yeah, good conversation. So Thank I want to comment on a couple of things. And you, uh, you know, you mentioned about charter schools. Charter schools law in many states. And I'm in Missouri. My name is Pianchi. They were designed for people, when they were initially written, for people in a community, in a district, who had an idea on putting forth a program to teach a group of children, which 
was not offered in the traditional setting in the public school. And, of course, they would be allowed to go through the process of securing facilities and so on and so on. Then those children could attend there, and part of the money that was allocated to them as they sat in a traditional setting would go to that charter school. But uh, things change, and we have what we have today. And in actuality, your urban school districts receive more money per child than your rural school district does because of the formula. That is that the housing stock does not exist in the city like it does in the rural area. And, you know, that is a problem. Now, what I was going to ask Dr. Spence, you know that you're starting to see now where you have more and more African-American families putting their children in private schools from K to 12, but more so generally high school, where the tuition is well above $40,000. And they are making up some large percentages of those schools, like Windsor's in Massachusetts, where blacks make up 52% of the student body, which is about 1200 and the tuition is $42,400 a year. What school is that and you I mentioned, have a, Bianchi? It's Windsor. Oh, Windsor. Windsor the School, Windsor Massachusetts. school in the Fenway. Yes. In Massachusetts, yes. You got Deerfield Academy, which I have a friend sent two of his dollars there, and that costs $80,000 a year. Mm-hmm. But you're you talking about a very of, small population. I'm very, uh, I'm very familiar with the Windsor School and Deerfield. And one of the things that this book points out, and I'll let Dr. Spence uh, speak to it, is that that, too, is another kind of dilution of the resources available um, in, to in, to black people. Well, how Dr. is it a dilution Spence, when they're paying for it out of their pocket? They not they're not taking money out of the general. So they paying well, that out of their pocket. Very, you're talking about a very small, um, a very small part of the population. You're also talking about schools that are not necessarily um, uh, higher well, levels. Here in the St. Louis area, we have private. Area. We ha- here in St. Louis area, we have private schools that take up. You know, a large population of black children, and but, I don't but, think that it's gluten. That is just for parents' like choice. Deerfield, Deerfield, and Windsor. Um, many of uh, many of the um, students, minority students, are black and uh, Latina students uh, that attend those schools. Also get. Uh, financial aid uh, that comes out of large foundations, and that's something else that Dr. Spence talks about. It is that other people taking care of uh, um, addressing the needs of Well, not necessarily all the time, because look at Piney Woods, for instance. That's all black school, and they receive the same. And then you have so, these neoliberals so, so, who's against those type of activities. But we're talking about so, the private so is, so, alumni kind of donations, foundations. Uh, Dr. Spence? Mm-hmm. So, this, so there are a couple things. So first, yes, yeah, charter schools, the idea of a charter school 
was to give people within a given school district the ability to innovate in ways that the public school district in general could not, right? Um, but what ends up happening could, is that that concept of innovation is tied to government deregulation, which is a consistent part of it, which is a really important part of the neoliberal turn on the one hand, and then it's increasingly tied to the concept of competition over the scarce resources that are allocated to determine public school allotments in general. So here in the state of um, Maryland, for example, we have charter schools now in the uh, in the um, now in the position of competing with public schools over with that is with regular public schools over the resources allocated for public schools, right? When you, oh, yeah, a number of black children, a number of black parents send their kids to private schools, either exclusive wealthy private schools like the ones you mentioned, although the number of parents, black parents who do that are very, very few because the number of slots, the number of those schools are very few, and the number of black people who have those resources are very few, or even working class Catholic schools, like in, as in the case in St. Louis was in the case in Detroit area. I myself attended a working class Catholic school from fifth grade to eighth grade and then from ninth grade to twelfth grade. But but that idea of choice that you talk about, individual choice simply used to reduce the amount of resources that public schools have to actually teach their kids. For every kid that makes a decision to go for every parent that makes a decision to send their, private, their kid to a private school rather than a public school, every time that happens, the amount of resources public schools get to actually fulfill their mission is reduced. Now, on Let's the one hand, let me finish, finish brother. Finish. Let me finish. Okay, on the one hand, I can't knock that, right? That's not the thing I'm knocking because parents have to make choices for their children, just like my parents made choices for me. But in general, those choices reduce the capacity of public schools to provide for the needs of black children. And in general, those decisions end up reproducing a policy that increases the, um, and that decreases the ability of black children to uh, fulfill their, um, to fulfill their missions educationally. And, and the, the, there's another point to this too, is that recently Yale University School of Education did uh, a study of char uh, charter schools across the nation, and charter schools are performing lower than public schools, yet you have public policy um, legislative yeah, yeah. at the state level that are trying to increase uh, yeah. the budgets of ch of charter schools. Now, that has to do with politics. It has to do yeah. with the private education system the industrial education complex that has influence over state legislatures. Well, two more things, and I'm going to leave you. Very quickly. Charter yeah. schools, very quickly. Charter schools here take, that child takes about $6,500 out of fourteen dollars to $15,000. The rest of it stays in the school district. It goes to that charter school who has to get their own buildings, by the way. 
And you have some school districts, like East St. Louis Public School District, where the average ACT score is 14.8. Those children are not going to go in a place like that. No black parent in their right mind would sacrifice their children to that. You got historical black colleges and universities. You only have five out of 108 that has a graduation rate over 50% in six years. Thank you very much. That has a lot to do with economics. It has an, uh, yeah. a lot. The yeah. dropout rate in HBCUs are based mostly on economics. Yeah, um, yeah. what I'd say to the brother, um, and hopefully he's still listening. I know, I know he's not on the call with us anymore. What I'd say to the brother is I'm not, I'm not, you know, in that chapter I have an education. I'm not, you know, black parents consistently have to make tough choices. Like I said, I, I grew up in, no, I didn't say this. I grew up in a poor uh suburb outside of Detroit, predominantly black, called Inkster. And the school system went really, really bad after fourth or fifth grade. And my parents made the tough decision to send me to basically a working class, not only a working class Catholic school, but a working class Catholic school in, in one of the most racist cities in the, um, in the metropolitan Detroit area. They didn't do that because they loved that city. They didn't do that because they loved that school. They did that because they had to make a tough choice, just like parents in East St. Louis and other places. I'm suggesting uh, that those choices are happening within a framework that reduces the ability that um, that consistently uh, that consistently takes uh, the resources, uh, the pub- whether you're talking about public school monies, whether you're talking about tax resources, whether you're talking about a range of different policies, that consistently takes resources and kind of shunts it upward to that, gives it to that 1%. And to the extent that we can talk about the solutions, whether it's private, whether it's private schools uh, replacing public schools or charter schools, though none of those solutions actually work in doing anything other than maybe giving some individuals more of a chance to succeed rather than actually increasing the capacity mm-hmm. of everybody to succeed. That's the critique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, and it gets to the the fundamentals of what the destruction that neoliberalism has done in our society, in our, in, in our public. And that is that it, it takes us away from thinking about the larger good to thinking about only yeah. a very narrow yeah. Uh, ser- a ser- service to a very narrow uh, population. Um, yeah. So that brother. Yeah. Yeah. So that brother, and 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 um, and I understand that that brother is just focusing. Is like, what parent in their right mind? Like, yeah, okay, yeah, I get that. I mean, again, my, my again, my parents decided to take me out of Angster Public Schools and put me in um, put me in private schools, but they didn't. They did. They did that, not thinking that was going to be the solution to the collective. In fact, they did that understanding in some ways that that would actually hurt the collective, but they just had to do that for me and my um, my brother and my sister. That it's mm-hmm. important that as black people, as we see black people making these individual choices, at least, you know, grassroots and work class black people, that, that, that we should not look at their choices as being proof that these policies that individualize public goods actually work. Because they don't. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. those policies mm-hmm. my brother was talking about, whether you're talking about charter schools or vouchers or whatever you're talking about, none of them 
work for black people. None of them work for poor populations. None of them work for working class populations. The data, mm-hmm. like you said, the data is is breathtakingly clear. Absolutely. And it really is, Dr. Spence, part of the infrastructure of the politics of neoconservatives. Um, and if we go back in history, for instance, I attended Jim Crow segregated schools until I was in the ninth grade. And my parents, whose parents paid taxes, couldn't go to public school past eighth grade because of Jim Crow laws and because of segregation. So those parents who could afford to send their kids off to boarding school to places like Florida A&M and Tuskegee and Howard and Lincoln University and and, uh, Hampton was another one that had high schools to accommodate um, children of Jim Crow for high school, uh, it's the same thing. There is no difference uh, in my mind about how that is working. Um, I mean, every summer I went to Palmer Institute um, when I was growing up uh, because – I don't know why, but (laughs) because my parents felt that there were certain kinds of educational experiences that I wasn't getting and I needed to get, or it was just a nice train ride to North Carolina. I'm not sure, but black parents have had to scrape and sweep the educational resources together over history, and we're still doing that, and that's what charter schools mean to yeah. to to black communities. Um, it's just um, I, I, for the life of me, it's a cannot, way out of no way. That's right. I, I, for the life of me, can't understand how a country with black taxpayers uh, issues vouchers and pays it out of tax monies for white children yeah. to be able to escape yeah. inner city schools because that's what happens yeah. with vouchers. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I hate to be screaming right. about it, but it's just uh, um, this is why we have to pay attention to public policy. Um, yeah. We have loads of local and state elected officials who have been pushing both charter schools in our community, online schools, and the gov- and you, you get more money for that than you get to go to Lincoln University. It doesn't make any sense to me, and it shouldn't make any sense to you. Okay, I'm going to get off my <laughs> my soapbox. <laughs> on that one. In the book, Dr. Spence, you talk, you talk about neoliberalism and the rhetoric of politics. You specifically mention the uh the opening of the King Memorial and the and the editorial that was written by Dr. Cornell West. Um <clears throat> and you disagreed with that editorial about what that memorial meant and what the King rhetorical uh, legacy meant. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, so um, so 
to the extent I wrote the book is kind of an intervention against uh, or an intervention in the way people on the left, are academics or scholars and intellectuals on the left talk about black politics. Wanted, what I wanted to do was kind of kill this notion of prophetic leadership or, 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 or really go against this notion that speaking truth to power was something that was primarily done by charismatic authority figures and that that dynamic is the thing that would lead us to liberation. Right. And so what I wanted to do um, is so in that chapter, which is the chapter right before solutions, I think uh, I talked about a conversation I had with Cornell West at an academic conference. He comes to hang out. He used to come hang out at the American Political Science Association conferences every year. And uh, he basically hoped forth for like hours. I mean, that's kind of what he did. And I talked uh -huh. about um, uh, uh, an editorial he wrote suggesting that if King were alive, he'd be very disappointed with Obama. Now, the thing is, is a critique against Obama, I get. You know, I make, and again, I make a critique against Obama. But the idea that MLK is the figure that we should be using, the kind of, that we should go, have to go back to 1968 or 1967, 1965 to find somebody to critique Obama with was kind of problematic to me uh, for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons was because if you look at, ML, uh, if you look at, even if you just go back to that um, bus boycott that MLK was a part of, what you find that it, that it wasn't MLK so much that made that bus boycott work. It was the institutional work of significant numbers of Alabama men, women, and children. And in fact, not just Alabama folk, Louisiana folk, because once that, what, the boycott lasted 381 days, they need to figure out an alternative means of, of, uh, of transportation. And it was a Louisiana pastor who had developed uh, a means of kind of organizing an alternative means of, of transportation. So I had to borrow that from him. Um, what they got, I think uh, King talks about how people were sending him like checks and money in the amount of $250,000. They didn't have the means to organize that. They had to actually hire people and figure out a way to have record keeping. That stuff isn't speaking to the power. That stuff isn't kind of charismatic leadership. That stuff is institutional development. And every time somebody like Cornell West, bless his heart, um, kind of argues that what we need are people speaking to the power and that we need are more, what we need are more charismatic leadership or what we need is more charismatic leadership, they're, they're actually arguing against the type of democratic organizing institution building that we know has not only worked in contesting um, oppression, but that has worked in developing deep, deep, deep institutional alternatives. So, so yeah, that's that's what I yeah. Mm -hmm, there's that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I understood I understood that, and it gets to the fundamental question and argument that you make in this in this in this uh, book that. The contradiction here, the challenge here really is in this turn, is that we have to see that we have a politics that is promoting um, the control of individuals rather than uh, the control of government rather than controlling the market. You know, we saw that. Yeah. In 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 how the banks were treated during the mortgage crisis, we see that in the privatization in many ways in our uh, in our government services. 
We see that in the push to privatize Social Security, to privatize uh, food and, uh, and housing and other kinds of programs. So yeah. once we can see that, then I think we can embrace the areas in which we have to act. We have to bring solutions. And in the chapters that you talk about solutions, you give us a picture of what they might be. But my question to you is, what is going to reverse this trend? Who do we have to call? Who do we have to club against the head? And who do we have to challenge? Um, so what we have to do is gener- is, is basically generate kind of a culture of uh, of democratic critique within mm-hmm. American community in general, but within black communities uh specific. We have to so what I mean by democratic critique is where where we kind of take more and more responsibility, not in a conservative way, but kind of take responsibility for really going at the people who represent us, who claim to, who represent us that is people we elect in office by people who claim to represent us, you know, people speaking truth to power. Um, we have to, whether you're talking about civil rights leaders or our church leaders or our elected, we have to kind of develop uh, or redevelop a kind of a critique, uh, 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 a, a generate a, a critique uh, that's designed to kind of increase our capacity to govern ourselves, right? So mm-hmm. that's the one thing. Mm-hmm. But the other thing we need to do is we need to aggressively organize collectively on behalf of the public interest. So I have I focus on four examples in the solutions chapter. The Chicago's Teachers Union, um, the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, who elected a uh, black radical nationalist to mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, Chokwele Mumba. I talk about um, uh, a successful attempt to repeal a $104 million jail for youth charged as adults in Maryland. And then I'll talk about the Black uh, Lives Matter movement just in general, right? But you see mm-hmm. in all those cases are people organizing. Um, or it's people organizing, people kind of using moral arguments but not relying on moral arguments, people kind of developing alternatives based on their interests and developing alternative forms of expertise. And we see people kind of um, – create organizations that are kind of membership-based in which you have clear transparency and clear mechanisms of accountability, right? Now, all this stuff I'm talking about may not actually lead to the world that we want, but we know that the world we want won't come without it, and we know that this type of labor is going to bring us closer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, recently we just did a program uh, which I call how to the title was how to fix our politics, and my my premise was we've got to bakerize it, we've got to learn how to organize, educate, agitate, and examine. Um, and yeah. I think yeah. that pretty much fits in to this whole idea of looking at the models. Why do you think, for instance, Black Lives Matter uh, is valuable in developing a solution? Uh, 
so what Black Lives Matter does, um, or what the different organizations that we think of when we think of Black Lives Matter, what they do is they do a few different things. One is they really, really uh, bring to light the role that policing plays in a neoliberal turn. Uh, in cities like Chicago, in cities like Detroit, in cities like Baltimore, police spending has taken up more and more, a larger and larger chunk of the city's municipal resources. And that police spending is mostly used in order to police uh, working class populations in general, black populations specifically. Right? Black Lives Matter does that more than any other group. They, in fact, they do that in a similar way that Occupy Wall Street, you know, brings our attention to wealth inequality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The second, Let me step the, the aside thing, for a minute before you go to the second thing. Um, mm-hmm. I have been critical of Black Lives Matter um, in mm-hmm. their structure and organizing. Um, um, our people in our community have will have a difficult time in grasping the straws of engagement with Black Lives Matter because they say nobody's in charge. Somebody's got to be in charge. This is an adult world, <laughs> and yeah, all well, of the. Well, Go ahead. Well, so let me finish though, right? Because it's not that. So, if, so I got critiques for all those examples I showed, all yes, those examples, and I have critiques of mm-hmm. Black Lives Matters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yes. I first want to talk about what they do, right? Because because we want to kind of give love to Black folk when they're doing, you know, about what they're doing. That's right. Before we kind of say, okay, this is what you're doing. That's not right. At least in the case of Black Lives Matter. So the second thing they're doing is they're emphasizing kind of a queer type of Black nationalism where instead of the conservative black nationalism that says that basically we're only going to really, we're going to predominantly support kind of black male initiatives that, that support conservative values. You're talking about black lives matter folk who are supporting black folk who are, who are not quote unquote respectable, queer black folk, black folk who are transgendered. We've never seen that ever, right? That's a new thing that they're introducing. That's really beautiful to see. That's the second thing they do. Um, um, and then the third thing they do is they understand that what you're talking about when we're dealing with the police is at some level you have to deal with the state and state policy, public policy, right? That's the third thing they do. But what they don't do, what some of, what some of them do, but not all of them do, and this is where Ella Baker comes into play, and this is where your critique comes into play, is they aren't necessarily all about organizing. Right. A number in a number of instances, what you have is groups who are interested in doing activist work, but they're not really interested in developing the type of institutions that are deeply connected in um, that are deeply connected to black uh, mm-hmm. black neighborhoods. They're not necessarily interested in doing the type of institutional work that Ella Baker did to make sure that regular black folk have the ability to say what goes on in these organizations and mm-hmm. they don't necessarily have the, they haven't thought through what, what, uh, how to develop the institutional mechanisms to enable them to last for longer than a year. Right. So you think about going back to Occupy Wall Street, most of those occupations were killed by the state within a year. Right. Um, now granted they, they, you know, they don't necessarily die, but, but they're, but you know, they're all dissolved. In mm-hmm. the Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter case, in, pay, in, case in, in, in cases like the Black Youth Project 100 in Chicago, you actually see people thinking about what a long-term organization should look like, but they're not doing that enough in other places. 
Yes. Okay. As as different and very very different from Jackson Rising. Kali Okuno has been a guest. um, uh, Brother Chakwe, prior to his passing, uh, has been a guest here at our common ground, and um, and those two organizing and education differences, I think, are are, are significant. Yeah. Uh, yes, I agree. Uh, I, I agree. Oh, and the other aspect, and this is where this is where they do share something with Jackson is they all start locally. Right. So mm-hmm. um, what happens in, you know, they start organizing locally in Ferguson after Michael Brown was killed, et cetera. Um, but that Malcolm X grassroots project, the thing is, is the Black Lives Matter project as it stands right now is really a youth thing. Right. Where if you look at that Malcolm X grassroots movement in Jackson and other mm-hmm. places, you're talking about something that's really deeply neighborhood based and that's multi-generational. Right. right. Um, in mm-hmm. some ways, I uh, understand the uh, how we focused on youth, but in other ways, I kind of ag- agree with the critique of somebody like an Adolph Reed when he says, like, youth is just one aspect of our identity. Youth age out, and all of a sudden, they aren't youth anymore. What we need to be doing is, yes, we need to be involving youth, but we need to be thinking about how to organize just black, poor, and working-class populations in general without an eye necessarily to how old you are, right? That's right. a significant mm-hmm. difference in uh, in Jackson, and you can understand. And it's common sense to say, wow, if you've got an organization that has uh, 60-year-old people who never left Jackson, 40-year-old people that maybe some of them are new to Jackson, and then 20-year-old people who may leave or may come back, that organization is going to be more stable over the long term than an organization that has nothing but 18-year-olds. Right. Right. right, that's just right. common sense, right? We've got another so it, caller for yeah. I, I just I I I I think that what you've done in the book in making those distinctions and 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 doing a comparative analysis of those particular movements is very important because it gives people a basis in which to think where am I? Where do I fit? Uh, in assisting and contributing to the organizing for solutions to these problems. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not yeah, necessarily uh, opposed to um, Black Lives Matter. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm getting ready to retire, and people are asking me, what, what am I going to do? And I said, well, maybe I'll just be a Black Lives Matter office and try to figure out to tell people where to go. <laughs> to All right. These things. Yeah, yeah. Four four three. You're on the air with Dr. Lester Spence. Thank you for your call. Call very quickly. Good evening, DJ. Good evening, Dr. Spence. My question is: I wanted to know. I live in Baltimore, Maryland. I wanted to know what hey, what were the black the black politics? Um, what what did you see as the black politics at work? during and, well, actually before, during, and after um, the Baltimore riots. And were there any similarities or differences that you could talk about um, the, the, the the black politics during the 1960s um, in terms of so, the, the, the riots yeah. during the 1960s? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you, Pat. Yeah, he so, does uh, that in the book. Oh, yeah, okay. So I have to you. get the book. Yeah, I'm, and I'm so sorry because I was actually – I gave a talk in Baltimore, my second talk in Baltimore yesterday, and I'm giving another talk within in March. So if you actually reach out to me, you know, I can um, make sure that you're aware of the next one. So here are the difference. So uh, first I'll talk about some differences between the Black Up Baltimore Uprising that happened in April and the Baltimore uh, Rebellion that happened after King was assassinated. So there was one – there were a couple of really important differences. So in a stark distinction to the to the up to the rebellions in general in the 60s, even including the rebellion in L.A. in 1992, there were no deaths in the Baltimore uprising in uh, 2015. None. Um, in the, in uh, 1992, I think at Los Angeles, the cost of the rebellion in Los Angeles was maybe was more than a billion dollars, I think. In the case of a city like Detroit, 1967, I think the cost was was in the hundreds of millions, I believe. And you'd be lucky. I mean, lucky. I'm I'm I'm, I'm simplifying, or I'm 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 kind of being crass. But I don't think that the cost of the Baltimore uprising in 2015 even hit a million, right? So it's important to kind of situate it as far as where it where it stands in relation to other similar rebellions at other points in time, because people made it seem like it was a lot bigger than what it in fact was. I'll, I'll say that. Um, as far as black politics, uh, what you, the, what, the reason why uh, you don't have the election. So for, for listeners who, uh, who aren't familiar with the Baltimore case, um, when Freddie, Freddie Gray was not the first person murdered and to die at the hands of police under suspicious circumstances. There were a number of others. Uh, most recently, Tyrone West um, died before Freddie Gray. And in fact, his sister has been organizing weekly demonstrations mm-hmm. on his behalf since mm-hmm. West's murder. And they're like maybe 120, 130 weeks in. Uh, one of the things that black activists did, because the attorney in Baltimore refused to prosecute police officers, even when it was really clear that they should be prosecuted, was they uh, was um, they actually worked to elect uh, Mar- uh, Marilyn um, Marilyn Mosby, the city's attorney general. Um, and when she was, in uh, one of the things she did as a re- um, after the protest or during the protest was say clearly that listen, I hear you. Like, your lives matter, we will take care of this issue, and we will work to the extent we can to make sure that justice is served. And she brought up charges against all the individuals. That is a function of black activist politics, where black populations, along with white progressive uh, folk and, um, and Latino progressive folk, said, okay, Freddie Gray, this is, an, is a social justice issue. We need to see this issue dealt with. Right. The second way we see kind of black activist politics working in uh, the politics of Baltimore is in the decision of the current mayor, Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake, not to run for a second uh, for another term. Now, the reason she doesn't run for another term is because her record on these types of issues is bad enough that there was significant um, that most of the people thought that she would not win were she to run again, because all of a sudden Freddie Gray would be the issue, 
black working class populations wouldn't support her and she would lose office, right? So just in those two instances, we see kind of black radical polit- or black activist politics connected to the uprising, generating dynamics that increase the capacity of black people in Baltimore to actually have a city meet its needs. And there are other, there are other ways I could talk about this as well, but I've, ru- I've written about this to a certain extent in the book, and I've written about this to a certain extent elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just one, just one more question. I wanted to know, how, has neoliberalism um, had an impact on the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, yes, it has. That's excellent. So one of the things <laughs> that, that you see. That is an excellent question. Yeah. So one of the things that you see um, as a result of the neoliberal turn um, is you see a turn towards social entrepreneurialism as opposed to political activism as a way to kind of figure out how to deal with or how to solve um, pressing problems in black communities. What you see in black, not in all instances, but what you do have within Black Lives Matter is a strain of social entrepreneurialism where you have individuals who are using Black Lives Matter in order to kind of, in order to kind of, um, how do I put this? Um, Using Black Lives Matter in order to, to, to benefit their own self-interest rather than uh, rather than to kind of bener- to, to to benefit the cause of social justice. Now, to be fair, this has always happened. It's not this isn't something new to this moment. But what this um, but once uh, but what the neoliberal turn enables or uh, or generates in this moment, as opposed to the, to the to previous ones, is kind of a, a fiscal a financial incentive in the form of foundation support and other types of support to, to cause kind of activists to kind of take a social entrepreneurial route to kind of uh, political activism as opposed to political organizing. Yeah. Okay. Does that make Thank sense? Thank you, Pat. Yes. Yes. Thank you. And you can, um, I hope you do reach out to Dr. Spence and check out uh, his presentation in March uh, in Baltimore. Okay. And thank you for always being with us. You're welcome. The, I enjoyed the show. One of the questions, Dr. Spence, that I want to try to bring us uh, in closing uh, down with all of this, and it's something that kept ringing in my head as I was reading the book, and I do want to thank our friend, our Common Ground voice, Bill Fletcher, for his wonderful interview with you. Um, and we played the, the clip uh, as we came into this segment. Uh, but one of the things that was ringing around in my head is that black nationalism uh, has always had a resounding undergird of do for self. And I don't want people to get confused about the politics in this country forcing us to take responsibility for uh, an unregulated, you know. So people will tend 
to 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 confuse the two. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, that's a that's a great that's a really really great point. So what we so the so the conservative black nationalist move because uh, there are different types of black nationalism. Uh, the conservative black nationalist move would have us say that the solution to black problems is black uh, is black is the development of like a black economy, you know, separate black economy. Uh, mm-hmm. If not, the development of separate black state. And this represents, you know, a, uh, and this is on what level is understandable. Uh, white supremacy is a deep endemic problem. And uh, some uh, a significant portion of our challenges can be kind of traced to white supremacist policy. What this approach at its best does, though, it, to the extent that this uh, that when we think about what this kind of black economy might look like, to the extent that we're talking about just kind of creating black businesses with the same business model, right? You, where you're talking about black corporations black individual business owners, et cetera, what you're talking about with that do-for-self type of initiative is just reproducing what we have already in white communities. And we and that type of dynamic tends to lead to kind of a trickle-down economic or political project. Now, we know that stuff didn't happen, doesn't help white people. There's no way that that stuff helps black people, right? What we have to argue for instead is kind of a sense that black – that uh, uh, kind of a black political project where we're consistently organizing for state resources, right, for state tax resources that we pay into to use them for the collective benefit uh, through through different means of collective organizations and institutions as opposed to solely, you know, having basically black businesses work our way out. And, uh, you know, where all that does, again, is just reproduce uh, inequality within black communities. There's a lot of, I mean, for understandable reasons, there's a lot of, of folk who kind of just automatically a knee-jerk reaction is we need to do for ourselves, we need to do for ourselves. And hell, I've, I've got black nationalist politics in a number of different ways, but that do for self, when you actually get to the nuts and bolts of it, usually leads to just um, kind of, it usually leads to kind of a black economic project that's no different from the neoliberal turn, only as black people running it. Right. Dr. Lester Spence, this has been wonderful, and I am telling you that for those of you who have not read the book, Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics, this is a must. It is a must read. It is a must understand the facts and the historical context and it gives you an examination of what the numbers mean. Uh, and we thank you so very much. We hope you'll come back um, uh, because I did want to talk to you very, very uh, much about what's happening with the um, 2016 presidential election. Um, but one thing very quickly that I do want to ask you, please, please, kind of evaporate my confusion around why this president decided not to attend the the funeral of um uh Supreme Court justice associate justice uh Scalia when he's pretty much been had good good behavior <laughs> in hmm. other words why did he choose 
Uh, you're the political scientist. Why did he choose yeah. to do this one? Yeah, you know, so I'm a political scientist, but I'm not, you know, I'm not that political <laughs> not scientist, right? So, so, so what? I, so what I'll do is I'll give you my personal opinion, but that opinion isn't really, you know, this is not really I got any type of special expertise. I think Obama, Obama is really sophisticated. He's really smart, and I think he knows. And so there are a number of instances where he probably felt, and I disagree with him, but where he probably felt that he shouldn't do X because if he did X for black people or for poor people, then he'd suffer, right? Now, I, I, I disagree on a number of those choices, but that's probably what his choice was. I think he understood that Antonin Scalia stood against everything that basically got him in that office. And mm-hmm. what he was doing in that moment is saying, I can't say this in, in public. I can't say this because it's the president. Like a president can't necessarily mm-hmm. speak ill of of a of a of an important political official who's just passed away, right? They they can't they just can't do it. But what yeah. he can do is say, you know what? I'm not going to benefit you and your family, um, you know, to the extent that I'm able. I'm not going to give you guys the benefit of my presence. And again, I I, I just I got a strong critique of of Obama, a strong critique of his policy, a strong critique of his rhetoric. But in this case, yeah. I think he did the right thing. I'm glad he did. <laughs> Well, thank you, and thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll come back. And to all of you, thank you for uh, being with us tonight, and because it is February, and um, I'd like to share with you a bit of black history. We hope you'll join us next Saturday night for Open Mic Saturday Night. And as always, I'll be listening for you. This is The Negro Speaks of Rivers, one of my earliest poems written in 1920, just after I came out of high school. The way this poem came to be written was that I was going to Mexico to visit my father, who lived in Mexico City, and on the train going across the Mississippi River, just outside St. Louis, I looked out the window and I saw this great muddy river flowing down toward the heart of the south, and I began to think about what this river meant to the Negro people, how, in a sense, our history was linked to this river, how in slavery time, my grandmother told me that to be sold down the Mississippi was one of the worst things that could happen to a Negro slave, and then a I remembered that I'd read about Abraham Lincoln going down the Mississippi as a young man. and He went on a raft to New Orleans, and he saw human beings bought and sold in the slave market there. And He was so horrified by this that he never forgot it. And many years later, of course, we know that it was Lincoln who signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And so uh, as the train went on into the gathering dusk, because... It had been about sunset when we crossed the river. I took my father's letter out of my pocket and began to write down on the back of his letter this poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I... At the plot of old beauty 
Now you talk about terror. I tell you talk about terror. People I've been terrorized all my day. Thank you so much for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. I'm so glad that you could join us. Join us every Saturday night at 10 p.m. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Don't forget, catch us on Facebook and Twitter at Janice OCG. I'm Janice Graham, and every Saturday night, I'll be listening for you. <laughs>